Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone this morning. Before we jump into our sermon today, I want to talk a little bit about a super awesome event that's happening here at Outlook next month. It's called Adventure Week. You've already been hearing us talk about it, but I want to give it an extra bit of space here to just say that I personally cannot wait for it. I, uh, I love it every year that we do something like this. Last year, we kind of reinvented our uh, Vacation Bible School into this Adventure Week, which ended up being just an amazing move. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting involved again this year and being involved specifically in the art track. For me, it's going to be a blast. And I want to invite you to join me and everyone else who's already signed up to volunteer to assist and serve in Adventure Week. It's a four-night event in June for kids, not only all of our kids, but as many kids from the area as possible, inviting them to come, pardon me, and enjoy four nights of uh, not only a lot of fun, uh, but a chance to learn more about how much God loves them. Amen. So if you've been wondering whether or not you're needed or you've been thinking about it, praying about it, let me urge you, uh, if you're feeling led to say yes at all, to go ahead and take that step. As I know we are moving into our final preparation stage of getting everything in place and completely ready for Adventure Week. So if you can volunteer and serve for any one or more of those four nights in June, that would be awesome. And you'd have, I know, my gratitude because it's always a good time and I think you'll be glad that you did. You can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you and learn more about that. There's a button that you'll be able to, to press through and learn more about all of the details of Adventure Week. All right. In this series, True or False, like we just heard Amy say, we are exploring the mixed messages and the unhelpful ideas that perhaps we've picked up along the way about God. And these ideas can hold us back and rob us from the real and rich life that God intends for us. And so we've been diving into Scripture uh, and seeing what it says is true about God and hopefully dispelling some of the misinformation we might be carrying about God. And we're wrapping up the series today with this idea right here. There's no way a good God exists in a world full of suffering. Now, maybe you've thought that yourself, wondered about that, or you've been in a conversation in which someone was really worried and thinking and stuck on that. We can put this in the form of a question, and the question usually goes like this, how could a good God allow so much suffering? Now, this is a valid question, uh, for sure. Christians believe that God is completely good and cares about us. So, how do we reconcile that with all the pain we witness and experience? It makes sense in light of all the suffering in the world that people would ask why a good God doesn't step in and change things. After all, if God has power over everything, why doesn't he use it to end everyone's suffering? Now, I know I'm skipping ahead, but I do want to go ahead and say right up here, what we're going to discover is God has stepped in. And he is changing things. And in one sense, he is using his power to end suffering, but not fully and not finally, not yet. And so that is what we'll begin exploring this morning. This is a logical question. But I also want to remind us, when someone is hurting, they need our love, not just our logic. Okay? But when someone is asking the logical question and is looking for a sincere answer, 
then it, uh, we can also address this in both ways. And that's my goal today, to address this with a health, healthy dose of both love and logic. And I want to start with a moving scene from Jesus' life and ministry. I'll be in John chapter 11. It begins like this. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now this scene begins with something wrong. Lazarus is sick. And people turning to the Lord, Mary and Martha, sending the message to Jesus. And in one sense, if we expand this story out to tell the story of human suffering, this is us. Something is wrong. Things are wrong. And they're not as they should be. And we wonder why. And we reach out to God. God, will you do something about it? Your dear friend is very sick. Now remember, there is an important difference. And I'm going to reiterate this later and explain it more. There is an important difference between what God causes and what God allows. Our faith holds the view that from Genesis, when the first humans rebelled against God, to Revelation, when heaven and earth join as one and God is fully recognized for who He is, you and I and Lazarus and Mary and Martha are living in a great in-between. You can think of all of life as that, in all of human history, uh, as this great in-between. We are in a story that is being told. It is unfolding, and we are absolutely living in it. It is a story where humans are fallen. That's how the Bible puts it. And our world is fractured and broken. And God has set about redeeming them both. So first, let's just dive into this for a few minutes. Humans and are, according to biblical theology, are fallen because we have the free will to reject God. And at some point, that's exactly what we've done. God chooses to keep free will, our ability to choose, to enact our own thoughts and, and put them into action. God chooses to keep this thing called human free will intact and not override it, right? Not step in and just whoosh, fix everything. Because he knows, this is an important point, that love, which is the point of the whole story, is only love when it's freely chosen. So, foundational point, genuine love requires free will. You and I have to choose to accept God's love. If we're forced, if it's forced upon us, if our free will is overridden, it stops being actual love. Now, there's a bargain here, and it's not always a good one. As a result, we, as humankind, are also now free to choose to commit any number of heinous crimes and personal offenses against each other and injure ourselves as well. That is the downside of free will. We are deeply flawed and fragile. We wreck so much of what gives us. It is hard of what God gives us. It's hard to find trust and to love. Much, even most, of human suffering is what we inflict on ourselves and each other. But the rest of human suffering comes from living in a world that is currently broken and awaiting renewal. We live in a brutal place. Just some things to think about in this regard. Tectonic plate activity renews the surface of the earth with minerals, but it wreaks havoc on humans when we build cities on fault lines. Rains that nourish the land also flood our neighborhoods. 
Cell replication allows our bodies to grow and develop, yet can result in cancer when natural processes misfire. All of this is an example of a world that's off kilter. It's broken and awaiting redemption. Death is a persistent part of the life cycle for now. Verse 4, back to our story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But when Jesus heard that Uh, heard about this, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Jesus puts his friend's sickness into perspective, saying that it is an opportunity now to point people to the goodness of God. That's another way of describing what it means to give God glory or to glorify God or God receiving glory. It's not hard to pick up a book today about spiritual formation and not read about an ancient Japanese form of art called uh, kintsuki, which dates back to the 15th century. In it, masters repair broken plates and cups and bowls, but instead of simply fixing them back to their original state, they make them better. The broken pieces are not simply glued together and then all the cracks attempted to be hidden, but instead they are fused with a special lacquer mixed with gold or silver. So kintsugi was invented as a way to turn the scars of a break into something beautiful and actually in the end stronger. This is a perfect object lesson for what suffering can mean for our human lives. And that is the question life is often asking of us. Will we find a way to become stronger in our broken places, knowing we live in a broken world and that life will not be easy and it will contain some suffering? Or will we rage against God at the wounds we feel we should have never gotten, never deserved, or should not have had to endure? This is the question kind of at the heart of the issue. Lazarus' sickness, and for us, we read any human suffering, is allowed by God and can become an opportunity for His glorious grace and strengthening. In other words, we're reminded we live in the in-between. Heaven is not here yet. Without pain, we'd never turn to our healer and experience the joy of healing. So Jesus puts this news, this trial that his friend is going through into some perspective. But the story is far from over. Verse 5. Although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Jesus' love for his friends remained strong, yet Lazarus remains sick. And as soon as we read, and as we'll soon read, sorry, uh, he gets a lot worse, to say the least. God's love and our suffering coexist. And this is a great lesson for our faith. Can God love me even though I'm still suffering? And what does it mean that in his love, my suffering continues? Let's go back to Judea, Jesus says. The disciples express concern. This is exactly where his enemies are. They're trying to kill him. Then the disciples and Jesus have this misunderstanding about what Jesus means when he says, I'm going there to wake Lazarus up. I urge you to read this whole account. It's really, really moving. And one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture happens in this in-between, in this part of the account. But we don't have time to go into all of that today. I want to stay on our point. And our point really continues at the end of verse 14. Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go to him. 
Jesus is aiming to grow us. He says to the disciples, I know something that you don't know yet. Lazarus has passed. He's dead. His sickness ended in death, at least for now. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there because what I know is about to happen will help you grow in your belief. In other words, this trial has a purpose. God is a great parent. God knows what we need. Jesus is aiming to grow us. He's aiming to grow his disciples. This reminds me of what James writes in his first chapter. Consider it pure joy, James wrote, decades later, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because why? Why why on earth would you be joyful about a trial? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops or produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James has put his finger on a point here that we really wish weren't true. And that is that there's some maturing and there's some completion to our character development that seems to only happen through tough times, through trials. It's only at our depths that we mine the richest insights. And what is light to us if we never know darkness? And what is healing if we don't experience pain? This is part of the human story as we live it in the great in-between. Christian counselor and author Brad Hambrick writes in his book, Angry with God. I think this is a really great point. He says, faith is often equated with a naive innocence that is blindly optimistic about any hard situation. Sometimes the idea that if you have faith in God, you're just going to kind of whistle, whistle past any of the troubles in life and keep a smile and a great attitude. But he goes on to say, when life is hard, the song of faith will be played in a minor key. That is, robust faith can have notes of weariness in it. This loss of innocence, in other words, the lessons we learn in the trials of life, goes by another name. James used it, maturity. Maturity is a good thing. Maturity is resourceful, observant, and anticipatory. In other words, we become stronger and more mature, even if our faith becomes a little less what you might call innocent, because we've been schooled by the hard knocks of life. Maturity is forged in suffering, and God knows maturity is what we need. There's no way around that suffering. There's no way around the fact that that suffering will produce the maturity we need. Without it, who would we be? God is perfectly aware of this. For your sake, Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there because now your belief will get the chance to grow. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Now, in this moment, as, as we're watching the story unfold and we read ourselves into it, how we respond to human suffering, Martha is demonstrating a mature posture towards suffering. I know what I want, she says, but not my will, your will be done. I trust you, Lord. Of course, she didn't want to see her brother die, and she's even holding out hope for what may happen in, in the future, but not my will, Lord, but yours. Suffering points people to God, or it can It reminds us this is not all there is. This is not all there is. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises in the resurrection at the last day. Again, she knows we live in the great in-between. Martha is acknowledging her hope in God's ultimate plan, which has been around for a long, long time. She was aware of it. This idea that, that history will include a day when all people will rise from earth, earthly death and stand before their maker. That's part of our Christian belief as well. It's part of her Jewish belief. It's still true within our Christian belief. Jesus now brings in this conversation that future hope into their present moment. Because Jesus tells her this, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, he says. Do you believe this? Everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And friend, I'm asking you, or I'm going to let Jesus ask you that question this morning. Do you believe this? If you're checking out that truth, if that's something that you're curious about, but you're not really sure where you land, hey, we've all been there. That's cool. I'm really glad that you're giving this some space to, to be heard and let this truth land on your heart. I want you to know you're in a safe place where you can explore that. And when you're ready to have a conversation about that, I would love to have that. Any of us would love to have that conversation with you about what it means to actually believe this, that in Jesus is life real, abundant, and eternal life. He asks Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this about me? She says, yes, Lord. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. This is a pivotal yes. It's the most important yes anyone could ever say. It's a yes that we've just heard Martha say. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, writes about this very He says, it is a basic principle of early Christianity, namely, that God, the Creator, intends to bring heaven and earth together at last, and that this plan has been decisively inaugurated in Jesus Christ. So now we live in a very specific in-between, Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. We live in this in-between where redemption has now been inaugurated, introduced into the system, poured out on the earth. The Holy Spirit of God is now able to live in our hearts. We can say this yes and begin to experience life with God, a bit of heaven in us and through us today. And in that in-between then, we're waiting for, looking forward to, praying for, working for that day in which heaven and earth, we read, come together. New, new earth, new heaven, new creation, new lives, eternal life then from that point on. It was inaugurated in Jesus. His resurrection from the dead was a precursor, was a first fruits, one of the biblical authors puts the way they put it. A first fruits of what was to come. And that is the new life we're all going to get to experience. Humans are fallen. Our world is fractured. And that's what makes redemption so needed and so awesome. And it started in Jesus. It's going on in my life and perhaps in yours, I pray so, today. After she said this, verse 28, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When Jesus saw her weeping, now I'm in verse 33, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. These two words, Jesus wept, are profound. He did not tell people to stop crying. He did not give them the impression there was nothing to cry about here. He did not say there was no need for tears because he was about to raise Lazarus, which we're going to see is going to happen. He stopped and he wept with them. And friends, right here, really, right here, is where we reach the crux of the theological situation. Because it's a theological question, right? Why does a good God allow so much suffering? It's a theological question, because theo means God, and logic, of course, means knowing and thinking. And so it's, it's a question that's thinking about God. And the theological situation really comes to a fine point at this moment right here. Because if we've been told that God in his sovereignty, causes everything that happens. Every rape, every genocide, that child abuse and, abuse and school shootings are all somehow part of God's overall plan. Everything happens for a reason, perhaps, we've been told. Then today's question becomes very vital and visceral to us. And we cannot conceive that a good God would cause, not allow, but if we've been told he's choosing, orchestrating, and causing all those events, then that question becomes really, really pivotal to us. But what do we see in this moment? God is as grieved and upset by the state of the world as we are, as pained by our pain, even more so. He knows that one day all of this tragedy will be over, but for now he grieves with us. And in the fallenness and in the brokenness of our lives and of the world, we live in this in-between that allows us to experience those and then turn to him. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, I'm real, speaks to us in our conscience but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is in our pain that we realize I can't endure this by myself. I begin to search for answers. If life were nothing but ease, I would think that I'm completely competent to navigate all the twists and turns because, hey, it's not that hard. But when we reach the hardness of life, we begin to see that we need the redemption and the wisdom and the love of our Creator. So yes, suffering continues, but it causes people, or ideally it causes people, to turn to Him. Free will stays intact, and thus real love remains possible. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Again, there's the question, right back again. It persists. What's going on here? Why couldn't have this just this just been avoided all together. We've got, uh, I was talking to a pastor friend yesterday and he was, he was telling the story of someone who was near death and wanted to talk about life and the afterlife and, and God and yet could not get over the fact that this question exists, the suffering in the world. And, and the, the sense was, and, and maybe you've experienced this or, or maybe you've seen it, but, but maybe we, when we, we like this question because we kind of begin to think, I've got something on God. You know what? Look around. This place is screwed up. He blew it. I don't have to listen to him. And we begin to think that we've kind of got the, we've got, we've got the, winning, the winning argument against God. 
And so now we get a pass because we figured it out and we've got something on him. But what if we're missing the point altogether? What if he is as upset and grieved by the brokenness of the world and the pain that we experience as any of us are? And that he's actually stepped in to begin doing something about it. And in fact, he's, when you look around, he's actually doing a lot about it. We might wish it were more, but we might wonder how that more will come. And that's what I'm about to see happen here. The presumption is that we know best, that we know how the story should go, how life should go, when instead God is doing his redemption work for our growth. God is the master of recycling the trash of our lives, right? He's expert at weaving all the trials and tribulations of our life into, even though he doesn't cause them, he uses them to create a tapestry that is ultimately beautiful and can form us into the people, mature and complete, remember, that he wants us to be. Meanwhile, we live patiently in this in-between, and we learn to count it as good. What did the Apostle Peter write? Don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's not slow, he said, in keeping his promise. People were looking around at how tough times were, and they're wondering, why doesn't he just wrap this whole thing up? Look at us. We're hurting here. And he drops this really important truth. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as you might understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He keeps time on the clock so that more people can begin to turn to him. He wants a big family. He wants lots of children. He wants you and I to have the room and the time and the space and the opportunity to share that love with as many people as possible. We long for a world without suffering, and rightly so. It's coming, friends, and we're a part of it, or we can be. Let's wrap up. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, says, comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor. He's been in there four days. Jesus said, did I I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Jesus prayed, called his friend Lazarus out of the tomb, and that's exactly what happens. Lazarus walks out alive. Jesus turns to the people after this amazing miracle, and he gives them an assignment. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And that reminds me that if God is doing some redeeming, if God is doing some miracles, if God is doing what he does to set some things right, and he is, he's working every day, day and night, all around the world, doing all kinds of good, and yes, alleviating a lot of suffering. This place could be so much worse. The world is suffering. People are suffering. God sends us on a mission to do something about it. You take off the grave clothes. You let them go. Partner with me in what I'm doing in the world. We wonder, is God going to do anything about what's happening here on this planet? And the answer becomes he's done something in Jesus and he wants to do something through Jesus' people. Amen? Through us. Why doesn't God do something about this world's suffering? He does or desires to through you and through me. So we started with a question about why is there so much suffering in the world? I often wonder why isn't the world so much worse? And how is it still so good? Every Sunday we remind ourselves of the answer. I'd invite you to take the bread and the cup. Every Sunday we remind ourselves of the answer. You and I know full well and we feel it in our bones. We live in a broken world. But we also know 
It's being redeemed. This is a world, we believe, we live in a world that is one upon which the Son of God stepped and walked and taught and gave his life and conquered death. That's the world we live in. We live in a visited world, visited by the Son of God. And now we live to see it do, uh, go amazing places and, and see amazing things because God is active on this planet. In Revelation chapter 21, we're given a glimpse of what God has planned for his people. It's a glimpse that we bring back into this moment with bread and cup because it describes at one point a whole other dinner, a wedding feast, where we're at a whole other table. Not the table of Jesus, remembering Jesus' death and resurrection, but now a table of, of, of celebrating the coming together of all his people. And in that vision, one of the aspects of it goes like this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. We will, he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more. Someone say, no more. Death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That chapter, it's on its way. We bring some of it to us in this life, thanks to Jesus. Let's celebrate that by remembering his body given for us. As well as his blood shed for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can ask hard questions, even get pretty upset with you at times for wishing the world were a different place. You can handle that. You handle us. You know us. You understand us and our pain and sometimes even our frustration or our anger. We feel like we're at the end of ourselves. And then in moments like this, we realize that's a great place to be, at the end of ourselves. Because when, when we finally reach that place, we have a good, clear view of you. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to be your hands and feet in this world. Help us to be reminded today, God, that you're not only grieved by the suffering that we are also grieved by, but you've done something about it and you want to do more through the hands and the feet of your church, your people, us individually and together. We celebrate that. We are happy that it's true. And we thank you for being you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.